1: You know, you've experienced this a million times, but for me, like, I didn't even know an experience like this was on offer, where the volume of chatter in my mind went way down. And I was really in my awareness of whatever was happening right now is just kind of dragged kicking and screaming into the present moment.
2: Hello, and welcome to the Met Hour podcast with Sharon Salzberg. I'm Lily Cushman, and I produce this podcast. Today, we're coming to you with episode 234, a conversation with the wonderful Dan Harris. Dan is someone you may know from his 10% Happier podcast, or his book by the same name, sharon's appeared on his podcast a number of times along with so many incredible different dharma teachers celebrities just a whole plethora of different personalities and dan's a great interviewer so it was fun to have him on the podcast being interviewed instead of being the one asking the questions and this interview coincides with the celebration of the 10-year re-release of Dan's book, 10% Happier, that is coming out March 5th of 2024 from Harper Collins. So this interview is a lot of fun. If you don't know Dan's story, he's not only an author and a podcaster, but he was an anchor and correspondent for ABC News for 21 years, hosting shows like Nightline, Weekend Edition, Good Morning America, And he reported from all over the place, covering Afghanistan, Iraq, Haiti, Cambodia, the Amazon. And he very famously had a nationally televised panic attack on Good Morning America. Not on purpose, but it just happened. And he was on the air. So a few million people got to see his panic attack. And... As part of his journey to kind of figure out how to have a more balanced life, he came across meditation and became a student of Joseph Goldstein. So he's got quite a story and has gone on to become such an advocate for meditation. I feel like he is someone who has singularly brought so many people to the practice in part because he has a way of asking great questions. He kind of takes this approach of skepticism. And he was somebody who was really pretty anti-woo-woo for quite some time. I think he still is. But a lot of his story is told in his book. It's, you know, an autobiography of his journey. And it's also about meditation. So this conversation with Sharon is pretty wide ranging. They They talk about the release of the book and kind of what it's been like to look back on something that he wrote 10 years ago and just what has changed for him in that decade. In particular, the journey of moving from cynicism to skepticism and kind of how he shows up today in a climate of nihilism and despair that's so pervasive right now, not only in the States, but a lot of people who are just struggling. There's also a lot of talk about Dan's work with his inner critic and how loving-kindness practice has had an effect on him. He also really documented his first meditation retreat with kind of incredible detail. And if you're someone who's been thinking about sitting a retreat, it's kind of a great introduction to a retreat experience. Also, I want to mention that this interview includes the story of the first time that Sharon saw Birkenstocks, which seems pretty relevant. (laughs) So you're going to want to get to that for sure. Dan leads a guided loving-kindness meditation at the end and overall this is just a super fun and interesting episode. So before we get to the conversation, Sharon's got a couple of events coming up in April that I'd like to point you to. On April 7th, she's doing a virtual conversation with Scott Barry Kaufman through the Spirit Rock Insight Meditation Center. They're having a conversation about Sharon's 2023 book, Real Life, and diving into the different themes from that book. And later in April on the 13th, Sharon is joining forces with Ali Atman Smith and Andres Gonzalez of the Holistic Life Foundation. And this is a day-long virtual immersion hosted by the Garrison Institute The theme of which is exploring love as the most powerful force in the universe. And there are some scholarships available for that. So you can go to Sharon's website for details on those and more. So let's get to today's conversation. Dan Harris and Sharon Salzberg. Hello,
3: Dan, and welcome to the podcast.
1: Hi, Sharon. Thanks for having me.
3: It's delightful to have you. It really is delightful to have you, and it's also, uh, the irony is strongly in the air, you know, that you are the guest (laughs) instead of the host.
1: (laughs) Yes, the tables have turned.
3: The tables have turned. (laughs) And you are such a fantastic interviewer, so I'll do my best. (laughs)
1: Well, for, thank you uh, for saying that. And uh, I uh, I, I will, first of all, I know you'll do great. And uh, I am not going to be judging you.
3: <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> so we are celebrating the new 10-year edition of your book, 10% Happier, which comes out on March 5th of 2024 from HarperCollins. And I would think it must be a bit surreal for you because this past decade, There's been a remarkable amount of change for many. In some ways, it's gone by quickly. In some ways, very slowly. And I know that there's been a lot of change for you personally as well.
1: It is. It is surreal. That's the perfect word. I mean, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on this too, but there's, I find myself stunned by the passage of time. Yeah. (laughs) You know, like, I can't. I And our mutual friend, Joseph Goldstein, I've heard him say that he looks in the mirror sometimes. It's like, who is that guy? You know, like he doesn't picture himself as in his mind as uh, coming up on 80. Um, mm-hmm. And I have similar feelings. I don't know. Does, does, any, does any of that ring true for you?
3: Well, totally. Like the passage of time, just the, the numbers, you know, like every time I'm introduced to somebody who has been meditating more than 50 years, I think, who? <laughs> or I've known Joseph more than 50 years now. Like how can that possibly be uh it's just too strange, but it really is strange. as it is you know a friend of mine who's uh eighty nine who's uh now ill uh currently he's in a hospital um and I talked to him today and and he said uh it is what it is and I thought, all right,
1: <laughs> I mean that's exactly it and uh it's strange and sometimes painful to get older. Uh but uh it's the best case scenario.
4: Because the alternative
3: it was kinda of good.
4: You know. <laughs> we
3: like that. I like knowing somebody for fifty years and we're still here. So it's good. But it's also interesting, I think, looking back at a, a body of work and to see how it's held up over time. Like I was just Working on on my second book, which has got to be like twenty five years old, at least, hard uh, as is, is the world, because that's going to be reissued. And when they first proposed it to me, that publisher, I was I had a little bit of trepidation, like, what did I think twenty five years ago? <laughs> How is it? Is it still okay? and it, it really was. So what happened when you look back on your your body of work?
1: It, you know it mostly held up. Um I could definitely see that the mind that wrote ten percent happier uh, it's not it's not really my mind anymore. Um mm-hmm. but uh I don't I didn't find anything too horrifying in there. I made a few <laughs> small changes. Um, yeah, but I I, I uh I, I If it felt to me like it held up, I don't know if it'll still be relevant for actual human beings who are looking for books to read. But um, the the model of doing something that you know you've done this with faith, especially uh, your book Faith. But the the model of telling a story, you know, I'm I'm really in, in that book. I'm really trying to it to put you like in a movie. Uh, and then marrying pedagogical, editorial, dharmic concepts to mm-hmm. the narrative, and having me learn things at the right time so that you, by proxy, as the reader, learn them. That model, for me, I, I, I mean, I was figuring that out while I wrote the book, um, how to do that. I didn't, because I, I didn't know what I was doing when I started. Um, that, that, to me, I don't know how successful I was at doing it, but that model seems. I like that model. And uh, as I'm now six years into writing my next book, I'm definitely sticking with that. The, the idea of using my own, you know, I know you as a, as a Dharma teacher, when you're giving Dharma talks, anecdotes, stories are Mm -hmm. gold. That's like the, the, the currency. And so I, I kind of, (laughs) I kind of invert the formula. It's like, it's all anecdote. And the, the teachings get peppered in as opposed to leading with the teachings and, and, dropping in a few stories, <laughs> and that's kind of, that model, I I I am still drawn to that uh, many years later.
3: Well, I think uh, the stories are basically what people remember anyway, you know, they don't quite remember the didactic elements as much as they do the story, which embodies them, you know, and so it's perfect. I also think you you occupied a space 10 years ago, which was really important as Somebody, you know, you didn't go to India when you were 18 years old. You weren't a hippie. Uh, you were like an accomplished person, you know, with with a career and, and your own, clearly, anxieties and, and whatever. But, uh, you know, you, and it's still a space that's essential. It's not like you have be, your messages become obsolete.
1: Well, I think you're pointing to something tricky, though, because 10 years ago, the world definitely needed friendly skeptics on meditation. Um, But the world has really changed in the past 10 years where, and I'm sure this is stunning for you to witness, it is no longer embarrassing to admit in public that you meditate. Um, And, you know, I remember when 10% Happier came out and I was doing the initial press tour, I wouldn't let the photographers for the various magazines I was doing interviews with take pictures of me meditating. Because I thought it would just be bad for my my image or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so that has really changed. And I have to do some hard thinking at times in an ongoing way really about, you know, the role of skepticism in a world where mental health issues are much more commonly discussed and mm-hmm. meditation isn't laughed at nearly as much as it used to be. So many of the people who were the most nihilistically skeptical about uh, and and mocking of my work when it first happened, you know, in my own personal circle, so many of those people are now avid meditators themselves. So the yeah, world yeah. has changed, and I don't want to have a shtick of Mr. Skeptical Guy making fun of this thing, making jokes about unwashed hippies and all that stuff, when, first of all, it doesn't really feel true to who I am now, and second, it may not land with people.
3: Well, it's interesting, because I had prepared a question uh, for later, but I'll ask it now or refer to it now, which is basically... Uh, I I sort of see your journey in a way as moving from having been cynical to being skeptical. And, uh, for you as a human being, you know, I would consider that a positive. And I think that space of being a skeptic is still very important because there are people that may not be as worried about meditation as they once were, but, um, they they relate more to the sense of, I'm not buying into a belief system. I'm not, you know, bowing and, and chanting and, and doing things that other people may be drawn to, which is fine, but not for me. And uh, I need to keep my career. I can't just flake off and go to India. And that space of being skeptical, I think is so essentially, first of all, it's essentially Buddhist, you know, don't believe anything just because I said so. And it's, it's an important message to, to maintain.
1: But I think for, I appreciate that. And I think you nailed it. It's the line between cynicism and skepticism. Mm -hmm. And I've been on the wrong side of that many times. And Mm -hmm. that is, I just think that's a, you know, a, a dynamic tension that I have to manage personally. And, you know, it's like in, in, in the Dharma, you as a teacher and many others will talk about how insidious doubt is mm-hmm. um, in your practice. If you're just stuck in a spiral of, am I doing it right? Am I doing it right? How's that other guy doing? Am I doing as well as he is? Like that kind of thing can be quicksand. However, there is a, there is a healthy doubt or skepticism, which is, you know, right, right back to the words of the Buddha, Ehi pasako, come see for yourself. Mm-hmm. Don't take what I say on, on faith you know, check it out in the laboratory of your own mind. And so I'm constantly playing with that. And I think, I think that's where I am internally, but sometimes if I'm feeling glib or trying to get a laugh or whatever, you know, some of my points of vulnerability, um, I, I can get on the wrong side.
3: Mm -hmm. Well, it's also, I think, an important space to be embodying and expressing because, um, the, next step after cynicism is just nihilism you know and we see so much despair going around and so having people kind of almost reassured like you can doubt in the right way you can insist on seeing the truth for yourself and that's good
1: you know i've been thinking about that a lot like the you know even among many of the people with whom i agree politically um I see a lot of despair, nihilism, mm-hmm. you know, a resignation that the world is all bad, we're fucked, um, you know, a mixture of climate change, Trump, um, uh, war, um, that that, you know, we're just going to hell in a handbasket and I I think all those things are big problems and I I don't yeah. question that at all, but it doesn't seem like there's enough skepticism on why are people why are we why are we so pessimistic right now is it maybe uh, the algorithms is it maybe that people are making a lot of money off of getting us scared and angry mm-hmm. is it maybe you know the business out of which i emerge the news business which has you know biases toward the most scandalous and most outrageous is it the evolutionarily wired negativity bias that is innate in most if not all of us um Let's let's be healthy, health in a healthy way, skeptical about that, because I, I think the nihilism that is abroad in our culture right now, the, the the resignation, the writing off of the species is actually making us less effective in in working on these big problems that most of us agree need to be tackled. I don't know if any of that is relevant of with where you're trying to go, but that, that's just what came up in my mind.
3: Yeah, no, I think it's great, and it's really fascinating to think about the potential role of meditation, or we would say the actual role of meditation in terms of each of our life experiences in forging a different sense of connection and meaning, you know, which I always thought was kind of weird. Like, meditation can look like the most solitary activity in the universe. Like, maybe you do it all alone, maybe you do it with your eyes closed, but somehow in that process of discovery, one of the things we discover is how incredibly connected we all are.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. For me in a couple of ways, one is, this is kind of starting at the deep end of the pool. I'll I'll (laughs) Go for it. But like one of them is, um, so you, you, you see after a while, I mean, I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but, um, you see after a while in meditation that like, yeah, yeah. there's nothing you can claim as yours, right? The ego, mm. these, all these random thoughts, like can you find the thinker of those thoughts? And and then even deeper, like uh, what is even aware of the thinking process or any of the other sensory imp- inputs at all? Like who's taking delivery of these various mental packages? Can't find that either. And And there's something in the not finding of, Consciousness, awareness, or whatever mm-hmm. that it's like, okay, well, um, you know, I don't have any evidence for this, but you know maybe there's maybe maybe that's tapping into something universal and way larger than my mm-hmm. small identity um so that's one way in which meditation can can get you you know sort of out of your head and out of your movie and a little bit more connected to others, but I think I'm, and th- if that sounds hard to grok, I'll say something. I think probably more understandable, which is that you, Sharon, have I, I give you enormous amount of credit for being the person who pretty much single handedly, in my opinion, has worked to popularize uh, loving kindness meditation or the mm-hmm. Brahma Viharas. These, I mean, this podcast is named after yes. Metta, yes. loving kindness, and yeah. and um, you know it, it can for people like me who can on a bad day be cynical. Um, the practice can seem—I sometimes call it Valentine's Day—with a gun to your head. Um, it can seem a little sappy or saccharine, but you know there, there's just a ton of data to suggest that this practice can, you know, make you happier, healthier, can change your behavior, can mm-hmm. it can, as you often point out, Sharon, it can it can, and this is so amazing, like improve your peripheral vision. Yes, um, isn't that and great? so this. <laughs> So this so this seemingly solitary pursuit like actually no you're going to the gym you're going to the dojo to train up your friendliness muscle and yeah I I think that's incredibly valuable.
3: Yeah well, we're going to talk much more about Meta in a minute. So uh back to your your book. Uh originally you wanted to call the book by a different title which speaks <laughs> a lot to the work you've done with your inner critic. So what did you want to call it?
1: <laughs> uh I wanted to call the book The Voice in My Head Is an Asshole um <laughs> which I still think is very funny and uh-huh. um and I want to make t-shirts um uh, uh I should have done that a long time ago I still think that's very funny and the voice in my head still can be irascible or unkind absolutely I mean I haven't I'm not like the Dalai Lama all of a sudden um and I have in large measure through uh, you know under your tutelage learned a bunch of skills for um having a different kind of inner weather. And that has been very meaningful to me. You know, this, the practice of meta, you you know, one of the categories of beings to whom we send the loving kindness or meta phrases, you know, maybe happy, safe, healthy, live with these, you know, one of the categories is to yourself. And so 15 or so years of varying degrees of loving kindness practice on my end and and sometimes going quite deep. There were several years where that was the only practice I did. And I've done a couple of long, you know, nine, 10 day meditation retreats where that was what I was focusing on. I don't want to say this is like monk level or Sharon Salzberg level, but just for <laughs> a, a busy guy in the world, it's not, a, it's yeah. a non-trivial amount. And, it you know, has have really changed the way I treat myself. And I think then adding on top of that psychological tools that were you know, pioneered by Dr. Kristen Neff at at UT Austin, you know, she came up with this idea of Mm -hmm. self-compassion and those tools of learning to talk to yourself, the way you would talk to a good friend, you know, uh, I have found them to be remarkably useful. And again, you know, they're backed up by a lot of data.
3: Well, you know, you share a lot in the book about your early career working in the news and I think Peter Jennings is a mentor. And of course, the moment that led you to the path of meditation, ultimately having a panic attack on air in front of 5 million people. And I wonder if you want to share that story. And I'm curious what you would say to that version of yourself now, now that <laughs> your, your relationship to your inner critic is, is transformed. <laughs>
1: Um. Yeah, I was just gonna say, like you know, all those stories of the the Buddha and past lives, the Jata- yeah. Jataka tales, or whatever. You yeah, know, like, yeah, yeah. I don't think there's any Dharma path that I've seen in any of the scriptures that starts with a coke field panic attack on national television. <laughs> so this is an unusual Dharma path. Um. But yeah, that's that's what happened. I was working at ABC News. This was in two thousand four. I had spent a lot of time in war zones as a very ambitious and idealistic young reporter. Uh, this was after 9-11. And um, and I came home in the middle of that period of time where I was kind of going back and forth between the US and Iraq and Afghanistan. And um, I got depressed, although I didn't actually know I was depressed. Um, I was having some physical symptoms like feeling fatigued all the time. um, So I wasn't conscious, but my body was trying to send me a signal that I was not uh, open to. And I did a very dumb thing, which is I started to self-medicate with cocaine. And uh, I wasn't high all the time or anything like that, but occasionally on the weekends I would do drugs. And then I was anchoring the news one morning on Good Morning America and um, just started to panic. And I wasn't high, so I didn't connect the two. Uh, if anybody wants to see it, you could if you just Google panic attack on live television, I believe it is the number <laughs> one result,
0: which
1: is such a source of pride. Um, uh Yes. So after the panic attack, I went to a a psychiatrist who, who pointed out what should have been obvious, which is that my dumb behavior in my personal life changed my brain chemistry and almost certainly produced that panic attack. And so I quit doing drugs and um, started doing therapy. And eventually that is kind of what led me to meditation. And what would I say to that guy now? I mean, I would talk to myself the way my shrink talked to me, which was tough. And firm, like don't, you can't, you can't do drugs anymore, and that's what caused the panic attack. And like you're good, like we we will we will figure this out together. And you're you're not going to lose your career. You're not um, you're not like an irredeemable moron, a little bit of a moron, but not irredeemable. And uh, <laughs> um, and 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 I mean, I, I try to model that now. Like, how would my psychiatrist or how would my dad, if he were, you know, still, um, healthy, talk to me. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's, you know, I don't always remember to do it and certainly not like it. it, Sometimes it's not my first go-to. Um, but you know, after some period of time, I'll remember and, uh, it's just super helpful. Well,
3: it's so interesting too. First of all, I've seen the clip of course, many times and one of the things that's so impressive is how your colleagues are so smooth and mm. professional. It's like you're sweating and, you know, well, you know what you're doing and and not having an easy time. And then they, they're they just like, thanks, Dan. You know, when you said over to you, whoever it was, and they said, thanks, Dan. And, and it was not like you're looking a little weird, you know,
1: <laughs> or are you OK? <laughs> like, <sighs> yeah, those the, the the anchors of the show at that time were Diane Sawyer and Charlie Gibson. And um, Diane looks a little, if you, I've, because I've seen the video so many yeah. times, she looks a little concerned. And then Charlie actually once, so Charlie, like, then tosses it over to the weatherman, Tony Perkins, and then he bolts out of his chair and runs over to me to see what was wrong. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so I, I mean, I lied to everybody and said I didn't know what had happened, but I, I did know what had happened. I knew I yeah, had a panic attack, yeah. um, but I was terrified.
3: What's well, also interesting. You know, that you mentioned all these different modalities of therapy, meditation, even the effort, you know, self-medicating with drugs. And um, I think that's helpful for people to think about because often when we're searching for a change in our lives, it's a process, you know, it's trying to put the pieces together and it can rarely be a straight shot and might be trying a lot of different things before we find out what actually is working for us right now.
1: I totally agree with that. Um, our mutual friend Roshi Joan Halifax had a great tweet a couple months ago and it's a it was an image of like a very squiggly line unbroken line but it was just squiggly and all over the place and then the caption was the path oh, and right. I just nails it you know I mean this yeah. is as type a westerners we you know expect to do something and get a certain result and unbroken upward trajectory of results and that's just not, the mind just isn't, doesn't work that way. And life is so unpredictable. Um, that, that, I mean, it, the only sane operating principle is to have a sense of humor about it.
3: <laughs> well, in your search, you, or maybe professionally actually, you found Eckhart Tolle and then Deepak Chopra. Both of them sound like they were a partial fit for what you were looking for. In- Well, they both gave you some illumination into the nature of the mind. Uh, Neither, uh, for you, really provided the practical teaching on how to, which I appreciate a lot because, you know, that's why I went off to India at the age of 18, because I heard about the Buddhist philosophy. I really considered it. I was going to college in Buffalo, New York. I looked around Buffalo, did not see it anywhere. I wanted to know, how do I do it? How do I actually make it real? And so I ended up going to India.
1: Yeah, and if you hadn't gone to India, you and Joseph and Jack Cornfield, yeah, Jack Danny did go to India. he went to Thailand. Oh, yeah, that's right. He went. To Everyone
3: Thailand. says that, but I, I'm always yeah. at pains to say he had a parallel life in Thailand while we were in <laughs> India.
1: <laughs> I should have said, well, if you didn't go to Asia, you that's and right. and all those other young New York Jewish kids, um, if uh-huh. you hadn't done that, I mean, that's the karmic cause those are the causes and conditions for me getting into this you know like i i don't think given the biases that were in my head you know when i first started getting interested in meditation et cetera, i don't know that i would have been able to take it in from a from an asian monastic um mm-hmm. and so to have western folks who seemed quote unquote normal to me i mean now i love the asian monastics and, and um and so I'm not proud of these biases, but I think the truth is to have, you know, avatars of the Dharma path who, you know, looked like me, that, that mm-hmm. was, and had, you know, similar cultural background to me that, that really helped me embrace this practice and made me think, oh yeah, yeah, these, these, um, these people remind me of my family members. And, mm-hmm. and, uh, and then I got to know all of you and it really, and, and by the way, that I think is really helpful. I mean, not that everybody listening can hang out with Sharon Salzberg. I know that that's a huge privilege that I I have, but I think it speaks to something that is universally um, doable, which is getting to know people who, whether in your immediate physical location or online, finding ways to insinuate yourself into communities where this mm-hmm. stuff is taken seriously and where meditation and the precepts and practices of Buddhism or whatever whatever tradition you're interested in are taken seriously and done in a, I mean, th- th- this can have, like I sometimes joke, like a an HOV lane effect or a carpool lane effect mm-hmm. because you're doing it with others. It, it provides a, a momentum that you wouldn't otherwise get in my experience. And this is, again, this is also backed up by the, uh, um, the research that suggests that people who are trying to establish new habits, it's, if you have social support, you just have a huge leg up.
3: And there's, you know, this kind of the mystery of these connections. Like I was just reading your your newsletter this morning, uh, which I, I you know, highly encourage everyone to subscribe to. And you know, this can be in the in the show notes, the information on how to do that. And you're talking about Danny Goldman, who was the person who actually introduced me to my very first retreat. You know, he was giving a lecture at this yoga conference. You know, I still don't know why he ended up giving that lecture. Uh, he was a graduate student at the time, studying psychology and studying meditation. He was in India, and uh, there was this international hatha yoga conference happening in New Delhi, and I was wandering around with some friends looking for a teacher and I ended up there and it was this you know truly terrible event where the low point was these yogis and Swamis up on the stage pushing and shoving against each other to be the first to grab the mic and speak and and it was just <laughs> like you know. I saw no hope in sight, but then I went to this, this lecture, and there was Dan, Danny, and he said at the end that he was on his way to this town called Bodh Gaya to do this intensive 10-day immersion retreat, which was a very practical experience in how to meditate, and I thought, that's it, and it was it. So I owe him everything, really, and, and it's just always a joy to see like when you mention his name and i think oh yeah you know it just happened through through <laughs> that connection
1: mhm i love the stories of you know that this i don't know how you feel about this the the name juboos but there, there's there's <laughs> this this group of as many of the listeners to the show will know the of uh, you know, in the sixties and seventies, young, um, mostly New York-based Jewish kids. Who you know, D- D- Danny Goldman, uh, but he was originally from um, California and then went to Harvard. But Richard Davidson, John Kabat-Zinn, Sharon Salzberg, Joseph Goldstein, um, Jack Cornfield—all these chewy Jewish last names—and <laughs> uh, end over, up end up over in Asia. Oh, Ram Das, who was um, yeah. uh, a Jewish guy from Boston, um, and. Uh, Richard Alpert and the, and and they all end up in Asia and all these com- connections are made and and they come back and and go into you know meditation teaching or secularizing meditation in the in the in the case of Jon Kabat-Zinn or doing the neuroscience that has made meditation way more commonly acceptable in the case of Richard Davidson, Danny Goldman writing books like Emotional Intelligence. I mean the impact on the world is incredible, um, and so yet for me just like being able to get become friends with all of you guys has been awesome. And, um, you know, there is a, these, speaking of these karmic connections, I don't know if you know this, Sharon, I think, I think you probably do, but your neighbor in Massachusetts, Joseph Goldstein, uh, he grew up on the grounds of a, a bungalow colony, mm-hmm. uh, a hotel. I mean, it, he doesn't like when Cutler's I call
3: it cottages. It. I've been yeah, there. Cutler's <laughs> cottages.
1: Right. Yeah. So, um, my dad, who is exactly Joseph's age, like I think born a month after Joseph, mm. summered at Cutler's Cottages. And I no, I didn't my know dad. that. Yes. And Cutler uh, was um, uh, Joseph's mother's maiden name, I believe. Mm-hmm. And yeah, yeah. The, the Cutler's uh, there was a wing of the family in New Jersey and Leo Cutler, who I believe is Joseph's uncle, was my grandfather's best friend. so
3: I had no idea.
1: Crazy wow. connections. Yes.
3: That is crazy. We, When we were looking for a retreat center, uh, people were urging us to buy in the Catskills and, and to buy Cutler's Cottages, which Joseph, he couldn't do it. <laughs> it was fine. We ended up in Massachusetts. Um, and there's another connection through Danny, which is Mark Epstein. I think at yes. uh, some yeah. point in your story, um, your wife, Bianca, I don't know if you were married at the time, got you a book by Mark Epstein, which was your first opening, I believe, to the teachings of the Buddha. And Mark um, had been a student of Danny's at Harvard, and uh, it was it was Dan, Danny who told him to go to Naropa, which is where we met in 1974, Joseph and Jack and and Mark and I.
1: So you're exactly right. That is what that is what happened. Bianca, who you are friends with as well, who's my now my wife at that time. She was uh, my fiance um, right after. So I had the panic attack. And then for many years, you know, I went to therapy, but I didn't get interested in anything, quote unquote, spiritual. And then for work, I ended up reading a book by Eckhart Tolle um, and and interviewing him. and And I got very interested in his quite incisive diagnosis of the human condition that, that we have this voice in our heads that's just yammering at us all day long. And and that when we're unaware of this nonstop conversation, that it owns us and we make a lot of bad decisions. And that clearly was why I you know went off to war zones without thinking about the consequences and then came home and did a bunch of dumb stuff and it blew up in my face on national television. So I was really interested in Eckhart Tolle, but interviewed him and then interviewed people like Deepak Chopra, et cetera, et cetera. I didn't find them sad. I I didn't find them sufficiently practical. Like what, what do we do about the voice in the head? And in the middle of that period, I came home from work one night and my wife gave me this book by Dr. Mark Epstein, who's a psychiatrist, lives and works in New York and has written a series of beautiful books about the overlap between psychology and, and Dharma. And I didn't actually know anything about Buddhism, nothing. And I read, I remember that night she gave it to me. I started reading one of Mark's books, going to pieces without falling to Uh falling apart Second book, and uh i was just blown away because i realized that this whole idea of the voice in the head was not like unique to eckhart tolle like the buddha was talking about the monkey mind 2600 years prior and Mm -hmm. um and that the buddha actually had these practical uh, applications like meditation uh, which i had always considered to be hippie nonsense and was uh, quite hostile towards but as i you got deeper into Mark's work and befriended him personally. I, I basically called him up and said, and begged him to be my friend. And we started having, you know, you see this in the book with this kind of like Tuesdays with Maury repeated touch-ins <laughs> with Mark throughout the book, who gives me advice on various things and guides me as, uh, you know, on like my on-ramp to meditation. And um, that was a massively impactful thing for me. And, um, you know, I, I realized that the meditation, which I had unfairly dismissed, it is not, it, it isn't, You know, it doesn't require a lot of the things that I feared it might like, you know, sitting in a funny position or wearing special outfits or joining a group or anything like that. And um, and that really helped me do it. But what's interesting is subsequently, you know, now I would definitely just full on call myself a Buddhist. Um, But at the time, I was not looking for that at all. So the fact that it was available in a secular flavor made made me very comfortable. Now, actually, I love diving, you know, into Mm -hmm. the ideas of the Dharma.
3: So, I'm curious, like, w- did you think, w- was your feeling about meditation largely that it was tied to a belief system, or did you just think it was a really stupid thing to do?
1: I just, yeah, both. Primarily <laughs> the latter, though. Um, did you think
3: it put you in some kind of, tr- put one in some kind of trance, or?
1: No, 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 no. It was more just like, you know, I my parents were ex-hippies, and um, they made me go to yoga class when I was little, and I hated that, <laughs> and um, they I dragged me to... On hiking trips and uh, granola store health, you know, like health food, organic food stores, and smelled like shit, and you know, just like I, I didn't, I had just <laughs> cultural baggage. I went to, I went to a small liberal arts school that was populated by lots of deadheads who I did not like, and so I just didn't like anything that reeked of either the new age or hippie stuff, and this was both in one. So it was, it was bias. Cultural baggage and just total ignorance about the basic blocking and tackling of the practice.
3: I just got such a big hit of our, of your being the next generation after mine. It's so funny. <laughs> it's like, because, you know, I, I don't remember the first time I ever saw granola, but I'm sure it was very exciting. You know, I remember the first time I ever saw Birkenstocks. <laughs> it was really exciting. It was 1974, and Joseph had a pair at Naropa Institute. You know, it was like, wow, look at those, you know? We're like, <laughs> that's very funny. Um, the pushback. Uh, that's really great. So at some point in your life you decided to go on a retreat. So was that retreat taught by Joseph?
1: It was, yes. Um, I went on retreat at Spirit Rock, uh, which is on the West Coast. Um the kind of for people who don't know, I'm sure this audience will know, but you know, this kind of sister center to Insight Meditation Society, which was Co-founded by Sharon um, in the 70s, and is, in my opinion, one of the, the greatest gifts to the world. Um, and, uh, but I, 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 I guess Joseph. I wanted to go on a retreat with Joseph because that's who Mark recommended, yeah. and also our mutual friend um, Sam Harris was friends with. And I, I had, I knew Sam from j- the journalism world because he was a, quite a prominent atheist. Mm-hmm. So I had interviewed him a bunch of times. And then I, I was talking to him and he mentioned that he was into meditation, was a student of Joseph's. And and so I ended up uh, either, I think Sam helped, talked to Joseph and got me into this retreat that was very hard to get into. It was a 10-day silent meditation retreat and I hated it.
4: <laughs> I, just, <laughs>
1: I just hated it. For the first four or five days, I just, I, I didn't like anybody who was there. I resented, I I thought I was wasting my summer vacation at this very strange place and and the hardest part was the the actually meditating from, you know, 530 in the morning till 10 o'clock at night. And, um, you know, I, I was just pushing and pushing, and pushing and trying too hard. And, and then I had a meeting halfway through with this teacher who I had been very judgmental of, uh, Spring Washam, who I'm now mm-hmm. quite close with. Um, but Spring, I had been telling myself these stories about Spring was just like the most annoying person and just like a, an example of all of the things i hated about the meditation world you know and um and then i i couldn't get a meeting with joseph on this day that i was really struggling so I, she was the only one who, only teacher who had availability so i got in to see her and she was like dude you're just trying too hard just relax don't don't push that hard and i then the n- very next sitting i had this you know you've experienced this a million times but for me like i didn't even know an experience like this was on offer where the volume of chatter in my mind went way down
4: mm. and
1: I was really in my awareness of whatever was happening right now. It was just kind of dragged kicking and screaming into the present moment. And I would say that 36 of the happiest hours of my life, which culminated with a session of weeping on the floor during Metta, um, mm. which is not something I had ever foreseen for myself. Um, any part of that sentence. And, um, and then of course the retreat went back to being unbearable after that, but um, it really infused me with a lot of, and this is a word I know that means a lot to you, Sharon, faith, not Mm -hmm. in this, not blind faith in a dogma, but like confidence that this practice was incredibly fruitful, uh, if done with some persistence, ardor, consistency. And um, yeah, so that, that was very helpful. I will, just one little story. a couple of years later, after the book came out, because I write I write about all of this in the book, and it's still the, the chapter on the retreat is still the chapter people who've read the book most want to talk about with me. Uh, but I write about this big, like, quote unquote, breakthrough in my meditation. And Joseph was out at Spirit Rock several years after the book came out, um, teaching the retreat again, this, that he teaches most summers at, at Spirit Rock. And he sent me an email that said, I'm at the site of your great enlightenment. I can't believe they haven't put up a plaque.
3: Oh, that's so cute. (laughs) That is so cute. And here it was that such and such happened. and Here it was. I learned to love the inner critic. (laughs) Oh, it's so sweet. (laughs) So let's talk about loving kindness, um, which had you dissolved on the floor Mm. while you're here. So it figured in your first retreat clearly in such a a literal way. And I know it's a big topic for you because um, your next book is, is on that. And uh, I remember when, when this book first came out 10 years ago and I was invited along with many other people by the Huffington post to um, say something, you know, on camera that they were going to then present to you when, when you were there in the studio. And just that day you had posted something on abcnews.com about loving kindness meditation which filled me with joy you know and having had you know previous conversations with you where you were like I don't know exactly really you know like mindfulness has got the science and marines do it but I don't know about loving kindness and then there you are promoting it so so for some reason I, I thought that the opportunity to speak was like kind of roasting you so I I, I gave this I think very funny <laughs> little speech about um, you know how you used to view loving kindness and how you seem to now be viewing it. You posted a thing about it, and then when I was actually watching it, I was watching the things other people said. Everyone was like dignified and praising, and <laughs> you know awestruck by you, and I was the only one who was like silly that way. But uh, it was true. It was like oh, this kind of a turnaround.
1: Hmm. I don't remember that video, but I assure you that your comments were the ones I liked the best because (laughs) (laughs) the people I am closest with mock me mercilessly. Um, (laughs) Most prominently, well, Joseph constantly makes fun of me. And uh, most prominently, though, uh, my my nine-year-old son, who uh, I basically live with an insult comic who's just constantly working out uh, great material on his father. So I like when people make fun of me. I actually came home. I was giving a speech in Miami a couple of months ago and I came home bedraggled and opened the door and uh, Joseph and Alexander were on the couch together watching football and oh, immediately just started in on me for a good half hour. <laughs>
4: making
1: fun of me. So I, I, That's my love language. So I, I I have no criticism of you for making fun of me. But yes, you're right. It's been a turnaround and I give you a ton of credit. Um, you know, I, 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 these ideas that may not go down easy need brave proponents. And you really stepped up with your, with loving kindness, your book, you know, several decades ago. And, and this was not, I mean, to, to your horn a little bit, this was not the practice that was given that much emphasis Mm -hmm. in the Dharma community was, it was really, um, Vipassana insight meditation and, um, and I, I, and even to this day, you don't find that many meta retreats, uh, uh, available. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I, I think that's a mistake. Um, I think to me, for me, the two practices, you know, mindfulness meditation, where you watch the breath or some neutral object. And then every time you get distracted, you start again. And through that, you develop your capacity to concentrate, and and more importantly, your ability to be mindful, to see with some non-judgmental, remove the contents of your consciousness so that they don't yank you around so much. That practice is in- incredibly valuable, obviously. And the practice of loving kindness for me has these complementary benefits that are really, I mean, quite profound. One, you know, it, it is on a very practical level, it is great concentration technique so if you're if you're worried that you're too distractible loving kindness meditation is it has been you know shown through millennia of contemplative practice but also through uh, the research to be a great way to to focus the mind but i think on on a deeper level what i found was that my mindfulness my self-awareness my seeing of my own stuff in my own mind contained within it an unseen aversive flick So, like I was seeing my capacity for anger or my fear or my greed I was seeing it but I didn't really want to see it and mm-hmm. only through doing this practice of loving kindness that, and really just kind of like turning up the warmth in my own mind what, have I been able to you know really take in with some equanimity the horrors of my own conditioning <laughs> and mm-hmm. also to you know I think inexorably that leads to seeing other people with less judgment, which, which you know is a relief. Um, yeah, yeah. So that that yeah, I, that that to me is how ha- is how it's worked. Does that does that track for you?
3: But totally. You know, um, listening to you, I was thinking. Well, you know, they say the Buddha taught metta first. The first time he taught metta was as the antidote to fear. Yes. And usually yeah. we think of that interpersonally. You know, the person we're afraid of might hurt us or has hurt us. But really, it's also about ourselves just not being so fearful with what we uncover, what we see, what we feel uh, in a whole variety of different circumstances. And that's really important. I mean, that in a way was my big motivation because, you know, we say things about mindfulness, all of which are true, like it's a non judgmental awareness and everything you just described, actually. But it's not that easy, you know, if you're in any way habituated to self judgment or, you know, excessive self-criticism and it's just not that easy. And so, uh, what's the missing ingredient. It's some degree of self-compassion or Metta including for oneself. And it, it just makes a world of difference. And so it's true. When I first started teaching Metta in in the U S which was 1985, uh, the year I got back from Burma having done the three month period of it. And, uh, it, it was, you know, I was criticized. It was criticized. You know, It's that's just a feel good practice. You're never going to see emptiness that way. And, uh, later on, it took me a while, but I realized, oh, there was a lot of, you know, gendered messaging. Yes. And there was like saying yes. that's a girly practice, you yeah. know, like, yeah. that's not the real thing. And so I have been really, um, happy, you know, uh, to, to see through the years how it's taken much more of a role and, been much more honored and uh you know people of all buddhist traditions certainly have have mentioned you know like oh yeah you know we always had it in the rhetoric we always had it in the chanting we always had it in kind of the context but there was not necessarily the practice day-to-day moment-to-moment how are you in this moment with this experience you're feeling you know and can you can you generate some loving kindness even for your inner critic which does not mean giving in. So,
4: right. yes, yes.
1: I think you're so right about the gendered thing. I mean, I'll just in my own mind,
0: yeah,
1: it's hard for me not to view my initial skepticism about it through the lens of sexism, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, and I'm not trying to, you know, self lacerate here. I, we live in a culture that's got infused with sexism um so of course those ideas are in my head and so this kind of reflexive rejection of anything too sappy well Mm -hmm. you know i I think at least for me that there 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 was and has been sexism infused into that and so um i can't i I have to imagine that i'm not alone on that and then uh, the other thing you, you said is about you know the 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 Buddha designing this practice as an antidote to fear, um, you know, I th- I've heard stories probably from you about, you know, the, it being terrifying to be, to meditate by yourself in the forest and mm-hmm, in mm-hmm. And, and, and the um, Indian subcontinent uh, 2600 years ago. And this was a this was a great practice for, you know, calming the mind. And, and you know, in an era when from the data I've seen, we are at unprecedented levels of anxiety. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, and I think this is like comorbid. This the unprecedented levels of polarization and mistrust, and so we're af- we're afraid of the world. We're afraid of each other. And you know, I don't know of a less, I don't know of a non cheesy way to say this. But what what's the opposite of fear? It's love. And so mm-hmm. what, what I, I'm in this book that I'm working on now, mm-hmm. like really, and I, I talk about love and kindness in the first book, but the book I'm working on now, like really thinking about, um, how to talk about it in a way that will, you know, cut through some of the skepticism and and the sex, the sexism fueled skepticism that I expect to encounter. Mm -hmm. And so how can I, you know, as a guy, how can I use my privilege as a white man, um, who, you know, will be listened to more easily, um, to, to get these messages out to people who otherwise might, might not listen.
3: Well, in in this book, you ask a question, or you you tell the story about interviewing Paris Hilton and her walking out of the interview. And at the time, you're contemplating it through the lens of Metta. and, and this larger question arises of the role of loving kindness or compassion in different environments. So, I'm wondering how your thinking has evolved, you know, to
1: these days. Yeah, she walked away. I was in, doing an interview with her, with her, and I asked. Um pretty obnoxious question which was do you think your time has passed because you know the kardashians were just getting popular and she was a little less relevant um and i've thought about that in hindsight like what would i ask that question again i don't know that i the the my with my mind now i would put it that way um but i actually do think it's a defensible qu- i mean who cares but like i do actually think it's a defensible question not that this is some big mm-hmm. issue uh, paris Hilton 's role in the culture but um the, in a world where we 've got bigger uh, uh issues to to worry about but i mean the 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 question does remain the the truly urgent question does remain, which is can you be effective if you're motivated by love um, and I just I would point you to a guy named the Dalai Lama who has mm-hmm. been a very effective political Negotiator and world figure on behalf of the Tibetan people, who um, you know were facing down a much and continue to face down a much stronger opponent in China, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. took over their country, uh, drove tens of thousands of people into exile, and this type of thing happens not infrequently on the world stage. And yet, this group of people have become a a persistent touchstone in the, in the global culture and their causes in the headlines in no small measure because of the savvy of the Dalai Lama,
4: mm-hmm. who
1: never vilifies his enemies, who talks about compassion, who says that his religion is kindness, um, and talks a lot about how having an altruistic mindset, which is just another way of talking about having love in his head, uh, for everything he does and how that that is protective for him. And, you know, I'm, I can't say that I have got this down, but I buy it. I don't I think it properly understood altruism, kindness, love doesn't mean you're a doormat. And you, Sharon, you talk about this all the time. I, mm-hmm. I've heard you say it doesn't mean you're going to invite your enemies over for dinner or whatever. Give them a hug, condone their mm-hmm. actions. It's just that you don't need to be motivated by hatred and anger in all of your work Mm
3: -hmm. yeah i mean it's really uh what a time we live in too you know like it's really like an essential essential message i want to also um share this list you have in the book uh is it the way of the warrior is that what you called it
1: yeah i think there was a a warrior the way of the warrior and i called this the way of the warrior
3: okay Uh, Number one, don't be a jerk. Two, and, but when necessary, hide the zen. I like that. Three, meditate. Four, the price of security is insecurity till it's not useful. Five, equanimity is not the enemy of creativity. Six, don't force it. Seven, humility prevents humiliation. Eight, go easy with the internal cattle prod. Nine, not attachment to results. 10 what matters most this is a fabulous list (laughs) it will never go out of style or or importance (laughs) like so what does it mean uh well first of all when necessary hide the zen which i liked a lot
1: i mean it's just what we were talking about like you don't you know i mean you're really good at this i i have learned a lot of this from you 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 can consistently cultivate an attitude of Generosity, altruism, kindness, love, understanding. But that doesn't mean you don't take firm action. It's just a question of what is driving the firm action. Is it because you hate that other person you want to punish them? them? Or is it because you um, love yourself or whoever else it is that you're trying to protect? I mean, Mm -hmm. I've heard you tell the story about some great teacher saying in India that if somebody's trying to pick your pocket, you should very lovingly smack them with your umbrella. And, Mm -hmm. you know, that. That's, I think, what I mean by hide the Zen, which is an expression from Mark Epstein um, that I've found useful. Although, as I hear you, not although, I will say, additionally, as I hear you um, le- read this list, I'm like, oh, man, I still am not doing a lot of these things. I don't know. You know. It's
3: just... a great list. <laughs> that one reminded me of, um, I'm speaking, you know, recording uh, from Barry next door to the Insight Meditation Society. And, uh, there were times when I was leading intensive retreats there and I'd go a little early to opening night to hear the opening announcements. I'd be sitting outside the room and very often the the managers would say, uh, sort of, you know, talking about the environment people were going to be in for the next little while, you know, that, uh, there's a, a three mile walk, a loop that people often take after lunch or something like that. And, Uh, Because the retreats are held in silence, you may come upon a neighbor who wants to chat with you and you shouldn't feel like you have to rigidly hold on to the silence. (laughs) So they they would say something like, you know, and if you encounter somebody and they start to speak to you, act normal, (laughs) you know. And so uh, when I read that, I thought kind of it's like an act normal, you know, just like you're a human being. Just be normal. Hide the Zen.
1: Exactly. Hide the Zen.
3: And what does the price of security's insecurity mean?
1: Well, that was a expression that my father used to. That, you know, uh, that was a little motto of his. Um, I I thought that it was his motto, but actually, he told me later that it was something that he made up to make me feel better about the fact that I was worrying all the time um, as a kid, and that that um, you know that he was trying to reframe it as like, hey, this worrying can serve you. But I, in the actual list. I have an addendum to the to the expression. So it's the price of security is insecurity dash until it's no longer useful. And so mm-hmm. I added in a little Joseph Goldstein there because mm-hmm. Joseph points out to people like, yeah, a certain amount of stress and worrying can be fruitful, but we usually take it too far. And so, just ask yourself, you know, when you find yourself going down the rabbit hole of worrying, like, is this useful? And so, a certain amount of insecurity makes sense, but too much is self defeating.
3: Mm-hmm. It's great. It makes me want to reread and reread the book because it's a wonderful list. So, just before uh, I ask you to lead us in a meditation, I want to talk about social media a little bit and also urge people to follow you. And- Various um, outlets because uh, it's a lot of fun, uh, and on social media, you shared a beautiful clip of your son teaching loving kindness to his class, so I was very curious about what you had taught him and when and how he picked it up and and now he's he's like teaching like a colleague of mine
1: <laughs> i mean it's so it's so cool because we go back to this whole gendered thing. you know my son is very what do the kids say now? heteronormative you know he's like a very jockey you know football obsessed mm. little boy um and um and yet he's totally comfortable leading loving kindness meditation i love that um i did nothing i don't believe i don't i certainly did not tell teach him how to teach this or tell him he should do that that's not i i know that that would be a recipe for disaster i think what happened was. So I I started many years ago taking him with me when I went on the road to give speeches. So I would pull him out of school. I still do this, pull him out of school and he comes to me. And usually he's not listening to my speech because he's heard it a million times. He's like watching his iPad or something like that. But he's, he's heard it enough times that he kind of knows my shtick and he's heard me guide people in meditation. So he just picked it up on his own. <laughs> and I didn't know this was happening. But then the principal of his elementary school told me that he had been teaching kids around the school how to do this. Uh, so I was shocked uh, because I don't even guide him one-on-one in meditation just because I'm so worried that he's, I'm going to turn him off. Um, anyway, word got over to the high school where they asked him to come and lead the high school kids, okay. hundreds of them in the gymnasium in guided loving kindness meditation. So I went with him that day and he was super nervous beforehand. But then when they called his name, he just marched up there and, let rip it was i was very very proud
3: oh it's so beautiful i'm very proud too (laughs) like wow
1: well you're you're part of the link in the chain here for sure you're 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 a lot of this begins with you
3: well thank you May we all keep linking because it's uh the best thing in life really so it's been wonderful hanging out with you today and i'm so happy um to share you and to share uh your your book and hopefully your next book with our listeners and just before we finish i'm wondering if you would lead us in a practice of some kind
1: yeah just to say thank you to you to lily your producer and you know for having me on and to you specifically for just being such an amazing friend and teacher for 15 years now and i i recognize as i said earlier how lucky i am to be able to rub elbows with you and with joseph so frequently um and i'll say you know as as because you're a little younger than my parents but you know uh, um as my parents have you know don't have they're not as healthy as they used to be and so i i I, they don't play a similar role in my life and as they used to and they were they did play a big role in my life but um and and they're still they they played a big advisory and mentorship role in my life that they no longer really can. And so to have access to you and to Joseph, this mm-hmm. is just very meaningful for me. So thank you. Really appreciate it.
3: Okay. You got a practice in mind?
1: I do. I do. Let's do loving kindness. Why not?
3: All right. Why not?
1: We'll do a short one. All right. Assume the position. What I like about this practice in particular is, um, sometimes encouraged to get extra comfortable
4: you can <laughs> sprawl
1: out on the ground if you want, or if you, yeah, I'm not limber enough to do this, but, uh, you can also get into the lotus position or just sit in a chair. That's usually what I do.
4: Sit in a chair, close your eyes and let's start by bringing to mind.
1: An easy person. Doesn't have to be a person. It can be an animal. So I usually start. We have a kitten named Curtis. I usually start with him or, or my son.
4: Somebody easy to love. And once you've got the image stabilized in your mind.
1: Doesn't have to be super crisp. Just a little bit of either a visual or a felt
4: sense of of the person, of your love target, let's send four phrases. May you be happy. May you be safe. May you be healthy. May you live with ease. next we're going to do a little bait and switch and move to ourselves and bring
1: an image of yourself to mind maybe as a kid or you can just feel your body
4: sitting in the chair or lying down may i be happy may i be safe May I be healthy and strong in this body. May I live with ease. Next category is a mentor or a benefactor. Pick a parent, a teacher. Sharon's a good one the Dalai Lama so somebody in your life directly or indirectly who's helped you and once you have the image or some sort of sense let's do the phrases maybe happy May you be safe. May you be healthy. May you live with ease. Next category is a neutral person, somebody you see all the time but might be tempted to overlook. Pick somebody.
1: This person might be hard to visualize because you're not used to looking at them, but
4: do your best. May you be happy. May you be safe. May you be healthy. May you live with ease. Two more categories. Next one is a little tricky. We're going
1: to do a difficult person. As Sharon often recommends, maybe don't start
4: with like the worst. Mildly annoying will do. Mm -hmm. May you be happy.
1: And by the way, happiness, wishing them happiness doesn't mean a continuance of their bad behavior.
4: Happy people tend not to behave that poorly. May you be safe. By the way, people who feel safe tend to behave reasonably well as well. May you be healthy. May you live with ease. Final category is all beings everywhere.
1: So for this one, I've heard Sharon recommend picturing the planet or getting a
4: kinesthetic sense in your body of, you know, omnidirectional good vibe sending. May we all be happy. May we all be safe. May we all be healthy and strong in our bodies. May we all live with ease. All right, good job. When you're done, you can open your eyes and re enter consensual reality. There you go.
3: Well, that was lovely. Thank you. And all beings, thank you.
2: (laughs) You're welcome. Hey folks, thanks so much for listening. If you want to check out more of Dan's work or to get a copy of this new re-released version of 10% Happier, the book, you can visit his website at danharris.com, D-A-N-H-A-R-R-I-S.com. I'd also encourage you to check out the 10% Happier app, which Sharon has a number of courses on and She's also been a guest on Dan's podcast many times. So for all of that, you can head to their website, 10percent.com. That's T-E-N-P-E-R-C-E-N-T.com. And for all things Sharon, including a free guided meditation, all the other amazing episodes on this podcast, and so much more, you can head over to Sharon Salzberg. Dot .com This has been the Meta Hour podcast on the Be Here Now Network. May you be safe, may you be happy, may you be healthy, and may you live with ease.